Uh, if you're visiting with us, we have been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 9, uh, starting at verse 33 this morning. Before we begin, I, I just had this rolling around my mind a little bit, and this is a really simple, uh, probably imperfect way to represent this, but I just think it's an important concept especially considering some of the themes that we're going to enter into in the Lord's teaching today. Uh, but it's an important concept for all of you, for all of us, to understand the difference between religion and Jesus. And uh, again, I have this in a very simple form, but it's just a, a little illustration for you to realize um, Religion tells us, I have these dots, right, these red dots, and I have these words. I know this isn't great. This is my beautiful PowerPoint for this morning for those who are in the back. But the, the dot represents things like change, morality, good works. I need to be a better person, right? You say, I need to be a better person. I want to be a better person. Uh, I want a, a higher ethic. Maybe some of you say, hey, I, I want to follow God. I want to do right by him. I want to change. I want, I, want to do, I want to do good and beautiful things. But what religion does is these circles represent God's love and acceptance. All right? So here you have God's love and acceptance. And what religion does is says, okay, you want to change. You want to be a moral person. You want to do good works. Those are kind of on the outside trying to force their way in to God's love and acceptance. I do these things to try and gain God's love and acceptance. And you know what that does? That leads to a lifetime of frustration. A lifetime of frustration. Right? You could read a little bit about Martin Luther if that's, uh, you know, it, it just, either, either it's a lifetime of frustration and guilt and shame or it's a lifetime of, of self-righteousness and pride. Somehow disillusioned that you're doing well. But see, the difference with Jesus is Jesus says, through me, through the blood that I shed on the cross in payment for your sins, you enter into God's love and acceptance as a free gift by the grace of God. And then in that safe place, we change. We adopt God's lordship and his ethic. And we are we are destined for works that he has prepared for us. But we don't do those things on the outside trying to pound into God's love and acceptance. Through Jesus, we do them already embraced in God's love and acceptance. And I'll tell you what, these two things are an infinite universe apart. An infinite universe apart. This is guilt, shame, Pride, self-righteousness, this is thankfulness, gratefulness, embrace, security, identity. <laughs> and we can go on and on and on, right? This is the place that I'm scared to show who I really am. This is the place that I'm not afraid of who I really am. Because I'm already in God's love through Jesus. Does that, does that make some sense? Does that make some sense? So that's really important come into like what we're going to talk about this morning. So um, last week we were reminded that uh, instead of this endless religious debate and infighting that the disciples were partaking in with the teachers of the law, these Jewish religious people of the day, 
Uh, followers of Jesus should be focused on a moment-by-moment -moment reliance on God. Um, and that's re reflected in this recognition of my innate powerlessness and inability and God's ability. And, 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 as, and this happens as I turn to him in faith, even imperfect faith, as we saw the man last week that was, that was pleading for Jesus for his son, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. And also as we turn to him in prayer. Uh, we heard Jesus plainly again speak uh, to his disciples that what was coming for him was betrayal. What was coming for him was suffering and death but then resurrection. What we've talked about these last few weeks is kind of what looks like this downward journey that eventually we see death overcome by life. But Mark reiterates that the disciples just on and on and on, they, they don't understand. What is Jesus talking about? What is he talking about death? What is he talking about raised from the dead? At this point, we're kind of getting used to the disciples getting a lot wrong. <laughs> um, but what's beautiful is that in, at each wrong turn, Jesus patiently instructs them. And, and, and sometimes some of that instruction was probably hard to hear. But it's, it's done in this, it's, it's just, it's framed in this place of love. They are his men. They are his disciples. And he he is looking for them to follow him in a way that really is beyond their understanding at the time. Um, and Jesus does the same with us. You know, we, we make a lot of mistakes. Some of you have come in this morning. I've come in this morning. I can look at this past week and I've made plenty of mistakes. And the Lord Jesus continues with his people that he's loved through his grace to say, hey, what I want in, in this is that you learn in that place. So this morning we have a quick series of corrective instruction on the nature of discipleship. Um, and, and again, we need to understand that, that believing in Jesus as Savior is, is this inward response of faith. Say, I need a Savior. I am unable, I am powerless to save myself and rescue myself. Right? Paul says, "Who? what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ our Lord. So I have this inward response of faith, and I look toward Jesus as Savior, and there I receive his salvation from now through eternity, his complete forgiveness. And not only his complete forgiveness, complete acceptance through Christ. And that's... By grace. That's by this free gift that we don't deserve. And it's accomplished for us through what Jesus did on the cross and out of the grave. But then we begin this journey of discipleship. So faith is this inward response to Jesus as Savior. And we can say now discipleship is this outward response of faith. As I, as I be, begin to follow Jesus as my Lord, my Master, as I come under his authority, the authority of his teaching, the authority of his will, his example, his way. An inward response of faith displayed in an outward response of faith of discipleship. But the thing is, is that discipleship runs counter 
to what we might call our natural inclinations. Um, and we, we, we can frame this section that we're going to come into in Jesus' teaching with all its twists and turns under the heading of how different the way of, the way of discipleship looks from what we would normally or how we would normally be inclined. So let's start verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum. When he, being Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, and now again, here you need to see what Jesus is doing is taking the posture of a first century Jewish rabbi who would sit down and call his disciples to himself for instruction. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So the disciples are walking, traveling along the road, and this is right on the heels of Jesus again reiterating his coming suffering, his coming death, his coming sacrifice. And as the Lord is leading, they are literally arguing about who is greatest. Maybe Peter and John think they're the greatest. Peter, James, and John, they got to go up on that mountain with Jesus. And maybe Peter, James, and John were going, yeah, you betcha. We are. We're the inner three. And maybe Judas is saying, well, I'm the only one with, uh, I'm the, only one with the title. I'm the treasurer of this group. Maybe I'm going to be the greatest. And you, you see, it's kind of, they're jockeying for kind of who will be in what place in the coming kingdom that surely Messiah will establish. And arriving at their destination, Jesus knowingly asks them, hey guys, what were you fighting about? And we know that he knows what they were fighting about because they don't answer him and he responds to what they were fighting about. I remember, you know, when my kids were little, sometimes you'd hear a commotion in the other room and there might be arguing and thumping and maybe some crying and all of a sudden you come into the room and you're like, what happened? And a lot of times, kids are very, very happy to say, it's all her fault, you know, and they start pointing fingers. But then there's other times you walk into the room, and there's, you know, we had four, four kids, and when our girls were little, it was like bump, 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 three little girls. Sometimes you'd walk in the room, and, and you'd say, what happened? And, and just like the disciples, there's so much embarrassment that they all just go. And, and you just get this embarrassed and disgruntled silence. And again, Jesus is so patient here. And we see that the major difference as Jesus teaches, the difference between following Jesus and our fleshly inclination, first off we see is how we value greatness versus how God values greatness. For us, greatness is usually measured by power and prestige and status. 
by advancement and popularity and, and influence and wealth. It's, 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 it's the rich CEO. It's the homecoming queen. It's the star athlete. It's the powerful politician. Say, oh, those are the great people. So greatness tends to be tied to an, amb- an, ambition, uh, an ambition that gets us in a privileged position. I'm going to be great. So I have an ambition to get myself in a privileged position. But as usual, God's ways are not our ways. So if I'm to understand his values, his priorities, his ethic, I must be willing to accept a complete reversal of how I am inclined in my flesh. For God, greatness is not about selfish ambition or jockeying for positions. But rather, it's found in humbly serving the needs of others without demanding reciprocation. And we know that by the example that he uses. He, it, it functions in such a way that I'm willing to surrender power, that I'm willing to surrender prestige and status, advancement, popularity, influence, wealth, so that I could serve others. It's to have ambition. So, so in our flesh, we have ambition to put ourselves in the position of privilege. But God says that, that greatness really is to have ambition to so, serve so well that you're putting others in those privileged positions. Even at, even at the sacrifice of yourself. It, it's, it's lowering yourself so others may be lifted up rather than lowering others so that you can be lifted up. And to drive home the point, he takes a child in his arms. And, and you have to understand, again, in, it's not like our culture where um, we, we, you know, try and elevate, not, not always doing well, try and elevate the status of children. In this culture, the status of children was very, very low. Um, in, in, in fact, in the Aramaic language, the word for child and the word for servant, same word. Same word. As far as we are concerned, greatness usually comes from making the right connections with, with, with powwowing with people that can get us ahead. Oh, so-and-so is in the room. I need to talk to them or I need to connect with them. Or I'll look much better if I'm with. But Jesus turns that on his head and says greatness is instead a willingness to serve those that everyone else overlooks. to serve them because of their low position. To serve the most marginalized. To serve the children, to serve the disabled, to serve the addict, the down and out. David Garland says, if one wants to be great, one should shower attention on those who are regarded as insignificant. So this is just a little, and again, I'm not guilting here. I'm just, let's process this. So to God, as we all sit here, to God, 
The nursery worker downstairs with the kids is in a position of greatness. Right? Right? Then why do we struggle getting nursery workers? And again, you're like, Randy, you're guilting me. I'm just, like, for real. I'm just, so those are the questions we have to ask ourselves because we say, yeah, that must be what Jesus is saying. But if we really believed it, if we really believed it, if we really believe that serving the least of these is what God calls great, we'd be living it. And shockingly, in doing so, in serving the most vulnerable, the ones the world most overlooks, the ones who have no position or status or power, the, the ones of whom serving there is no earthly reward or advantage. Right? So that's a good litmus test. Am I serving so I get reciprocation, or am I serving those that I know can't pay me back? In doing so, Jesus says that the disciple is vicariously receiving and serving him. And not just him, the one who sent him, God the Father. R. Allen Cole says, in, his, in this humility, we receive a child as we would the king himself. To God, a disciple's greatness comes from a willingness not false humility, but true humility to put yourself at the back of the line rather than the front. It, it, it's to have an ambition to help those the world considers least rather than demanding they serve you. Okay, so verses 38 through 41. Teacher John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we, and we told him to stop. Why? Why? Because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name, so this is a legitimate moving of God in the name of Jesus, can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. So next, uh, we see that where we tend to wanting to be, there's this longing to be exclusive, having what has been called the, the we for and no more mentality. Jesus teaches that discipleship is ready to embrace others ministering his name, even if they're not a part of your specific group. And you say, well, that's elementary, right? <laughs> but down through the ages of the church, it's proved anything but. Yeah, so what's interesting is, so you take this example. So here's what's interesting, too. What's going on in their heart? John, this, this one that later becomes this apostle of love, but early on, he and James are brothers. They're the sons of thunder, right? He says, listen, Jesus, we did you some good today because there was this guy that was casting out demons in your name and we shut him down. 
because he's not one of us. But what, just, what did we just read about a couple of weeks ago? That as Jesus comes off the mountain of transfiguration, there's arguing going on and embarrassment going on because they tried to cast out a demon and couldn't. There's a little jealousy going on here. How dare this guy? And then they fall right back into this, this place where they're protecting their own reputation, protecting their own status at the expense of those who are in greatest need. No, 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 no. You can't drive out demons. You can't deliver people from those evil forces. You're not part of the club. So, so what then? It's limited only to... You know, so we say, you know, do we really want the needs of others met? Do we really want the power of Satan stifled? Do we really want the gospel to go out in power to as many as can hear? And we say, oh, of course we do, yes. But how often, if it was up to us, would we limit these things only to those of whom we approve? Well, you know what, brother, you don't have the right degree. <laughs> you know what, your Christian denomination thinks differently, wrongly, obviously, about some issues differently than we do. You're not approved by our people. You're not ministering under our banner. You're not doing it according to our methods. In other words, you're not one of us, so we will hinder you and we will discredit you. Or you're not, this is, or you're not one of the chosen few, because don't you know only clergy can do that? But, but, don't you know that only ministers of the gospel, don't you know that only pastors are really serving and ministering in the church? Do you know how foolish that is according to scripture? I love, I love, uh, Kevin, if you don't mind me saying this, Kevin came up a couple weeks ago and said, and just, and I appreciated the encouragement. He's like, hey, hey, I, I, I really appreciate your sermons. And I said, and I said, and I say this with all my heart. I said, Kevin, I said, your role in the church is just as important as mine is. And I love it. He just said, Really? Really? That's not just some token, you know, cliche, some nice thought. Kevin taking armfuls of chairs at the pavilion before anybody gets there and serving you and the, ki and the person in the nursery and the one on their knees praying when you don't know it, all those things are just as important, maybe more important than me standing up here. But, but we want to be so exclusive. And we want to protect our preferred status. And Jesus is saying, instead of seeing people as a threat and protecting that supposed status, he makes it clear that his men need to expand their understanding of us. They shouldn't lean toward protective jealousy and exclusivity, but rather be willing to embrace others ministering in his name, not as competitors, but as allies. Now, Jesus isn't saying that neutrality toward him 
is equal to loyalty. He says here, whoever is not against us is for us. So you can, you can almost get that idea. Well, maybe neutrality is okay. In, in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says the same principle, but in the reverse. He says, he who is not with me is against me. In other words, what Jesus is saying, really, there is no neutral ground concerning me. If you're not against me, you're for me. If you're not with me, you're against me. And he's not saying that there shouldn't be discernment. And again, this is where we take all scripture in context, right? Clearly through the Bible, there's teaching that, that, we, need to be, that we need to be thoughtful and testing of those who proclaim to be working and speaking in God's name or in Jesus' name. And some will actually prove to be false. But, but there's an equal danger, and I think that the Lord's speaking of here, toward being having this overprotective exclusiveness. David Garland warns that, that if we lean towards such, such exclusivity, the enemy becomes anyone who is not one of us instead of Satan. And, and Satan loves that, right? We talked about that over these last couple of weeks. The enemy becomes anyone who is not one of us instead of Satan. And, and Jesus says, no, you've you got to understand that even the smallest acts of kindness done in my name, someone giving a cup of water in my name when, in an hour of need that would have really spoke to these, the people that were receiving this gospel who would have been under persecution in, the, in Rome, anyone who does the smallest act of kindness in my name will not lose the reward. Uh, finally, 42 through 50, continuing this theme of discipleship being so contrary to our inclination. And if anyone causes any one of these little ones, and again, that, that's a little tough. We, it, that could be a reference to back to children. It could be a reference to those who are vulnerable or young in the faith. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. And that would be like a millstone that a donkey would be turning to, to, um, to uh, press out grain. Then he goes on, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And the word for hell would have been this parallel of Gehenna, which would have been this this place outside of Jerusalem that was always burning. It was a, a garbage heap. Back in the days of idolatry in the Old Testament, it was a place where, where uh, sacrifice, human sacrifices happened. But it was this garbage heap where carcasses and garbage and, and, and all kinds of refuse was thrown there, and it was always burning. And that became this picture of everlasting judgment. Verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. It's one of the toughest verses in Mark to know what the Lord's saying. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. So third, 
where, there's a, where my natural inclination is one of self-indulgence, I, I, I want what I want when I want it. <laughs> the disciple of Jesus instead is, has a willingness to, to sacrifice those things that lead to sin. Jesus says we have to be careful not to lead others to sin, especially children, especially the most vulnerable, especially those who are young in their faith. The Lord obviously says you're entering into some serious, dangerous territory there. And we must also be willing to do major surgery on ourselves in those areas that we ourselves are prone to sin. Because sin is that which is opposed to what God calls good. Those things that God says are pure and lovely and beautiful and healthy and right. Sin is all the opposite of those things. And, and, and that is which prohibits true life now and in eternity. And Jesus speaks here of fire and salt, and they're, they're pictures of judgment and refinement and effectiveness. And, and some of the words here, admittedly, are difficult to interpret. And we could spend another hour talking about some various interpretations, of, especially on verse 49. But overall, it seems that the point is having to do with the dangers of allowing sin to go unchecked in our lives. That, that, that it hurts others that it hurts ourselves, and in the end renders you, even as a believer, in, even in this place of God's grace, God's love, God's acceptance, if sin goes unchecked, it renders you ineffective. Salt that has become impure and lost its effect. And it should be obvious that Jesus is speaking in figurative language here. It's almost language right out of a horror movie. Like, if a few of you have read it before, you go, oh, I've read this. But I mean, like, first, first hearing. Now, and again, self-mutilation was clearly against what any Jew would know God would call for. So these would have been stark. This would have been a stark, ugly, difficult picture. But if we were to take it literally, you would have had to, you would have had to, you know, well, if we were to take it literally, I would have taken my brain out, right? And, and who can take one eye out and say, well, it's just my right eye that's causing me to sin, not my left. It's just my right hand that's causing me to sin, not my, you know. It's just this foot that's causing me to sin and not this one. It's clearly meant to be hyperbole, which is exaggerated language to drive home a point, right? So if you say, I'm so hungry I can eat a horse, right, that's hyperbole. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to over-soften Jesus' words. Donald English says, Jesus is deliberately using the most severe language here to stress that sin is to be opposed at all costs. Why? Because it's deadly. And why? Because it's not fitting to who you are anymore if you're in Christ. Like, like Paul writes about it's not even who you are. Jesus died. If you're unified with him, you're dead to sin. Why would you live in it any longer? But he also knows that it's an ongoing struggle. Our eyes are often a vehicle of lustful desire. Our feet represent those things that move us toward temptation. 
And we know what those things are in our lives. It might be different for someone else. Our hands may represent actually engaging in wrongdoing. And Jesus says that, that if we're to desire to live the eternal life that he offers us, again, it's still in Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Our inward response of faith will lead us to an outward response of discipleship. And that outward response of discipleship is so radical that it would be willing to violently cut away all that hinders life. All that God says ends in death. James writing to Christians in, in James 1, 13 through 15, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to what? Death. It's just the nature of sin. So Jesus is saying, don't, don't play around with it. Look to cut it out of your life. And, and you're not doing it in the religion. I need to do this so God loves me. You're doing this in the realm of Jesus where God already loves you. Right? It's very different. So, so when I want to do away with bitterness, or I want to do away with some or I want to do away with anger, or all the different things that trip us up. When I want to do away with greed, you want to do away with someone who's struggling with pornography, you say, oh my goodness, i got to do these things to get God to love me. No, change your morality and good works happens because you're already loved by God. And in that place, the Lord says, why would you live in that death any longer? Cut those things away. Have, have, even if it's radical surgery... Stop, stop worrying just about your reputation and how you look and appear. And start worrying about what's actually going on in your heart and your character. Because you're in a safe place to do that. And, and again, it's not a guilt trip. It just isn't who you are anymore if you're in Christ. Colossians 3.5 tells us that we must be willing to put together whatever belongs to your earthly nature, and it's because that's a part of the old dead life. He says, but now that we have been raised with Christ, that's the position of those who have put their faith in Christ, raised with Christ, we are to set our hearts and our minds on things above and not earthly things. And, and we do this partially because Jesus doesn't want us to, to lose our distinctive effectiveness. He wants salt to remain salty. He wants it to bring flavor and seasoning and preservation from the corruption of the world. And then finally, he, he says this little thing, and it's just, I just point this out because of how the Lord brings us full circle. He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. So we see it all started with an argument about greatness, Right? Who's the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, Peter and James and John think they're the greatest, and maybe so-and-so thinks they're And Jesus, Jesus loves John, you know. Who's the greatest? And the Lord says, no, no. You've got it backwards. <laughs> 
And true discipleship is going to foster such humility, such service, such willingness to embrace one another, such love for the broken and the vulnerable and the downcast, such a willingness to cut out all that hinders that, that will foster peace. So discipleship is counterintuitive. Greatness instead of power and position is, is about humility and service to the least. Instead of exclusiveness, the, the Christian disciple opens himself up, herself up to embrace all, all who truly move in the power in the name of Jesus, even those of other denominations. And instead of self-indulgence, the Jesus follower sacrifices all that hinders life. But in doing so, the disciples will eventually see, and we're called to see, that this is the way of Jesus. That Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he doesn't lead the way. And, and this, 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 uh, this seemingly downward journey of self-sacrifice will actually be the journey that raises you up. That death will be overcome with resurrection. Let's pray and then we'll close with our final song. Father God, you know how I wrestled through these words this week. You know that how much I want these words to be spoken in spirit and truth and received in spirit and truth. Lord, I pray for this group of people, men, women, and children, that they know, first and foremost, that salvation is always in Christ alone through faith alone, by grace alone. And as we respond in faith, that inward response, then there's a call in that safe place of forgiveness and acceptance and love. Okay, now it's time for discipleship. And that discipleship will look so different than the inclinations of my, my fleshly sinful heart. Lord, help us not out of undoing shame and guilt. Help us as you draw us close. Draw us by your side. That you're so patient with us and teach us from our mistakes to live into who we are in Christ. That we would be dead to sin and raised with Christ, alive with him, loving and at peace with one another, humbly serving those that the world calls insignificant, willing to put aside those things that we know lead to death in our hearts, and that we would do it to your glory, and that we would remain salty, effective, light in a dark place in your name. We pray these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.